I grew up in an unbelieving home. Uh, my dad was a tavern owner. He had a business called Alcorn Amusements, so my basement was filled with pinball machines, shuffleboard machines, had two pool tables, uh, foosball, had two jukeboxes in my bedroom. So my place was a popular place to come uh, with my friends. But the interesting thing was in our family, even though the family business was called Alcorn Amusements and it was about machines that were supposed to make people happy, nobody was happy. Uh, it was an unhappy family. My dad was an alcoholic. Um, my parents had both uh, been married and divorced before. My dad would come home drunk. My mom and dad would yell at each other. I'd lay in the bed and, and listen and wonder how long before they're gonna get divorced again this time with me and my brother on the outside of things. And this is the home that I grew up in. Um, good people in a lot of ways, but troubled. I was very unhappy as a child. I would sit and, and listen to uh, the Beatles and uh, John Lennon singing, help, I really need somebody. And, and I was serious. I, I thought, I, I need help, but I had no reference points. I had a hobby of astronomy. I'd go out under the, the cold uh, Oregon nights in the summer and, and look up at the stars. And, and, but there was a profound emptiness in me. I, I kind of wondered at the greatness of the universe, but had no clue what it was about. So I first heard the gospel when I was a teenager. And for the very first time in my life, I had a hope of something that could bring meaning to my life. And when I was reading through the Bible and I got to the Gospels, everything flipped, everything changed. All of a sudden I started to understand because here was Jesus. And Jesus, I could to a degree wrap my mind around and say, this is someone I believe in. And I suddenly found myself believing the words that I had read. I came to faith in Christ and probably the most significant thing that happened to me was I was infused with a sense of happiness, of peace, a contentment, a fulfillment that I had never known until that point. So as a new believer in Christ, I had this new happiness. So it didn't mean I was happy all the time. There was actually a, a Sunday school song, Happy All the Day. Well, I wasn't happy all the day, but I had a basis. I had a foundation for my happiness that I really had never had before because I believed that Christ was real, that he went to the cross for me, uh, I was forgiven. Uh, I, I read scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. All things have become new. Uh, I, I was different. I was transformed. Uh, at the same time, of course, life was still difficult, still challenging. I had times of difficulty, sadness, depression, and those are a natural part of, of life uh, under the curse. But one of the interesting things that happened was one weekend I heard my pastor uh, of this church and not having grown up in church, church was a brand new experience for me. And the pastor was talking about how God doesn't want us to be happy. He wants us to have joy. Scripture says rejoice in the Lord always. But joy was something non-emotional. Joy was not just this, this happy, bubbly feeling type of thing. And then he quoted from Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest, and I was already reading that book. Loved that book, and I came to this portion that my pastor had quoted from, 
where Chambers said, you know, God is concerned about our joy, but he's not concerned about our happiness. And it was interesting because I believed it because someone who I really respect and still respect, Oswald Chambers, had said this thing, but it didn't ring true to my own experience because I had experienced happiness and I couldn't understand the difference between, what's the difference between happiness and joy and gladness? It was counterintuitive to me, but at the same time, I, I believed it. It was years later when I realized through my own study of scripture and looking at different translations and consulting Hebrew and Greek scholars and my own training in Hebrew and Greek in seminary that I began to realize that these distinctions between happiness and joy were artificial. They, they just, they, there wasn't a scriptural foundation. So I discovered that in my Greek and Hebrew studies in Bible college and seminary, as I would look at the Greek lexicons and I would see these different words that were translated, a, a word could be translated joy and you looked it up in the lexicon and it described it as joy, uh, happiness, gladness, merriment, and sometimes the translations would choose one of those words and not another, because of course they have to choose one word. But that I, I saw that there were overlapping circles of meaning, and it was an artificial distinction that I was hearing almost everywhere, and I think very commonly preached in churches and still preached today, and in, in articles, in Christian magazines, in whole chapters of books that are dedicated to the difference between joy and happiness. One of the things that I've discovered in my more recent studies in writing the book on happiness is that we've really done ourselves a disservice because we've ended up sending a message to people in the church and outside the church that this Christian life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, really doesn't involve happiness. If you want to be happy, go out and find it in the world. If you want something that's called joy and doesn't even involve your emotions, maybe you can find that in the church, maybe you can find that in the gospel. I think that's very unfortunate. Happiness is a bridge to the world that we need to reach. We should not burn that bridge. It's interesting because when I've gone back in church history, I very carefully studied the use of the word happy and happiness. The Puritans used it all the time, and they were a lot of the uh, highly influential early English speakers. The King James Version translates the Hebrew word Asher as happy 18 times, about 40% of the time that the word is used. Other times translates it blessed. But in the days of the King James Version, that was 1611. Uh, happiness was something that Christians talked about in very positive ways. Happiness was a good thing, not a bad thing. The Puritan Jonathan Edwards, speaking in the uh, 1600s into the late 17th century, would uh, address this and, and use the word happy. He used the word happy more than he used the word joyful. He spoke of happiness uh, more than he spoke of joy, though both of them he spoke of a lot, and they're almost equal in their occurrences, but they're interchangeable. Charles Spurgeon talked about happiness all the time. I, I went uh, into the Logos Bible software and searched all the times that 
Spurgeon referred to happiness and how many times he used happiness and joy within three or four words of each other, and he used them as synonyms, and he would stack them up, much as the Psalms do with parallelism, where it'll talk about joy in God and gladness in God and merriment in God and happiness in God, and, and they're all interchangeable in meaning. So really, what I discovered was it was only uh, in the 20th century and the mid-20th century that I started to see in my reading negative references among Christians to happiness. Of course, everyone had always recognized that you can try to find happiness in sin, but the point was that the happiness to be found in sin was not lasting and fulfilling, and it was the passing pleasures of sin uh, that Hebrews 11 talks about. But what I found was that this kind of new generation of Christians was looking around, they're saying everybody's talking about being happy, and they're trying to find happiness in sin. So suddenly, happy became sort of a bad word. And it was really a pretty dramatic change over the course of decades where people started to sometimes routinely speak of happiness in negative ways. Of course, the truth is that we all are happiness seekers. What the Bible says is that we are to find our happiness, our delight, our joy, our gladness in God. And what better reason to be happy in God than what the, the Bible calls the good news of happiness in Isaiah 52, verse 9, in the context of Messiah coming to atone for our sins, the good news of happiness, which we know to be the gospel, because this passage is cited in Romans chapter 10. We know for sure this is the good news of salvation in Christ, and it is to be happy-making. Isaiah 52, 7 talks about the good news of happiness. And that, in its immediate context, leads in to the end of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, this great messianic passage about the redemptive work of Christ. And so we know for sure that the good news of happiness that's referred to in Isaiah 52:7 is the gospel, what Luke calls in the New Testament the good news of great joy, and what Paul cites in Romans chapter 10, uh, as how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. This is the good news of happiness. So happiness is something that should excite us. Happiness is something that we are to find in Christ, and the gospel is about happiness. So anytime we try to separate the gospel from happiness, eternal happiness, and also short-term happiness as we learn to depend on and draw closer to Christ, we're doing a disservice to the gospel. We're doing a disservice to scripture. So the good news of happiness is the good news of the gospel. We should be careful not to try to separate people's yearning for happiness from the gospel and send them the message happiness isn't good. No, happiness is good. We should find that happiness in God. And Jesus actually went to the cross to bring us eternal happiness and also to bring us here and now in our present lives a happiness, a joy in Christ that can get us through the toughest times we face in life. I think we especially need to be emphatic about the gospel and the happiness nature of it. 
so we really need to send this message to the world that Christians are not this intolerant, hostile, anti-happiness, negative, sour-faced, lemon-sucking group of people over there in the corner, which sometimes we've succeeded in communicating. Now, sometimes we'll be criticized for taking a stand for truth. If we take that stand for truth and we take it graciously, well, that comes with the territory. But let's not unnecessarily alienate people out there who need the gospel, who need Jesus, by sending them an anti-happiness message. I think we need more than anything else to be able to say that Christ did come into the world to meet our deepest needs. And you find in Christ a contentment and a depth of pleasure and relationship uh, that you can't find anywhere else. And, and, and it's of a lasting nature. Uh, Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. That's what Christ came to bring us. Psalm 3211 says, rejoice in the Lord and be happy, you who are godly. Shout for joy. We should be people just overcome with a sense of the love of Christ. Nothing shall separate us from his love, Romans 8 says. It says, if God be for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. All of this should make us, as A.W. Tozer said, the happiest people in the world. So the moment you talk about happiness, some people think, is this prosperity theology? Is this health and wealth gospel? Well, you know, my take, uh, as I've talked about in other books on prosperity theology, is it's from the pit of hell. So uh, I don't want anything I say about happiness to be misconstrued as prosperity theology. Prosperity theology is having faith, not in God, really, but faith in your own faith, that if only I have enough faith, then I can lay out a prescription for what God should do for my life and bring me all this money and all this health and I'll never be sick and if I ever am sick there'll be instantaneous healing as if we can write that script for our lives you know you read scripture and you're told uh, brothers don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal you are experiencing as though something strange were happening to you as Peter says count it all joy brothers when all of these trials come your way james says well why does it say count it all joy it's not saying count it all joy because you won't have trials what scripture is saying is in the midst of all these trials that come your way you have a foundation for joy happiness gladness that transcends the circumstances of the situation you are facing that's very different than health and wealth gospel that says, actually, the only way I'm going to be joyful is if God does what he wants me to do. And God is not in a habit of doing what we want him to do. He's not always going to keep illness and tragedy and loss and sometimes even poverty, the loss of a job, whatever it might be, from coming our way. Rather, he's going to be faithful in the midst of those things. If you want to see two examples of that, Biblically, look at Christ and look at what is said of him in Hebrews 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the pain. 
Jesus looked forward to a great and eternal joy that he himself would experience. He promises that to us. But meanwhile, in his life, did he face difficult circumstances? Sure. By modern standards, at least modern American standards, he was poor. Um, and he, he did not have a lot. He just, he just had that seamless garment that he wore. He didn't have a place to lay his head, he said. He wasn't complaining. He had a joy in God, but it certainly wasn't based on health and wealth gospel, prosperity theology. Some people say, well, we ought to live like a king's kid, meaning we ought to drive the nicest cars and live in the nicest houses. And you go, well, who was the king's kid? Jesus, the son of God. How did he live? And then look at the apostle Paul. He gives this long list of of, uh, being shipwrecked and naked and cold and hungry and uh, uh, stoned and all of these different things that happened to him. And he said to us, writing from prison, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So health and wealth gospel makes it dependent upon health and wealth. Then we'll be happy. Scripture makes it dependent upon Christ, who he is, his faithfulness, what he's done for you, and what he promises you for all eternity. So that now, today, I can front load into my life what is promised me on the back end in eternity with him. But meanwhile, I'm told Christ is in me, Christ is with me, Christ loves me. He says, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. Well, yes, we're still called servants in other places, but what he's saying is, I want a personal relationship with you I will be with you. You can depend upon me. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. That's the basis for our happiness. I think I'd like us all to kind of come away with a sense that we can relax. Uh, The God of happiness has called us to a life that, yes, involves stress. Yes, involves suffering. We live in a world with sin and curse and suffering. Yet, he has called us to a happiness in Christ that's fundamental to the gospel. It is the good news of happiness. When you hear good news, happiness is the proper response. Don't feel guilty for having fun at a party. God's people in Scripture are people who partied more than anyone, more than the pagan cultures. They would have whole weeks of feasts and celebrations in which they would bring praise to God. We should seek out celebration in our life. Uh, We're not in danger, many of us, of celebrating too much. Sometimes we're in danger of celebrating not enough, of failing to see the goodness of God's creation and of bringing praise and glory and honor to Him. And He is with us in these things. So relax, enjoy what God has called you to. It's not contrary to fulfilling your duty to follow Christ. It's a part of enjoying God as you live the Christian life. 